Welcome to What's the Revolution, a show for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can understand and embrace a healthier masculinity. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corpru. In her famous 1958 song, Nina Simone sings, To be young, gifted, and black. Oh, what a lovely, precious dream to be young, gifted, and black. Open your heart to what I mean. In the whole world, you know, there are a billion boys and girls who are young, gifted, and black. And that's a fact. Young, gifted, and black, we must begin to tell our young, there's a world waiting for you. This is a quest that's just begun. When you feel really low, yeah, there's a great truth you should know. When you're young, gifted, and black, your soul's intact. Young, gifted, and black, how long to know the truth? There are times when I look back, hmm, and I'm haunted by my youth. Oh, but my joy of today is that we can all be proud to say to be young, gifted, and black, it's where it's at. What do those words mean today? And what are the challenges, struggles, and trials that men, and particularly men of color, face in achieving and maintaining that status? Today on the show, I will be joined by distinguished professor Chris Tyson, award-winning associate professor of law at LSU, and my main man, superstar developer and entrepreneur, Sean Barney, to help me answer those questions. Sean, what's up, brother? How you doing? I'm hanging in there, man. Thanks for having me, and I'm delighted to be on with my buddy from uh, Howard University, Chris Tyson. So looking forward to a good conversation. I, I'm not in barbershops too often anymore because I have the, the ball head like you do, <laughs> but um you said this is as close as we'll get, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. We're going we're gonna, to uh, wait for uh, Professor Tyson to call us in, man. So we're going to get started with you. And, and normally, Sean, I ask everyone this first question, but I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait because I think, I think that your revolution is going to spark a longer conversation. Sure. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to wait for that question. Um, you're a local boy, you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? So for the people who don't know you, the people who don't know you, but for my listeners nationally and around the world, who is Sean Barney? Well, Sean Barney is a New Orleans product, St. Augustine High School uh, graduate. Uh, I went away to Howard University, but perhaps more importantly, son of Clarence and Marie Barney. My mom was a lifelong educator. My father was in the, uh, as he liked to say, the Save the World business. He ran... Uh, the Urban League of Greater New Orleans for about 30-plus years and was on the forefront of the fight for uh, civil rights and inequality. And um, the great thing about my parents, I'll tell you, is that the day I graduated from college, they retired. So they were like, oh, you know, nice. we, you got we, it. we are done, and it's all on all on you. So um, that's probably it. And then professionally, as you said, my background is in finance and real estate, but I, I am born and bred in New Orleans, love it. And uh, moved back here right before the the storm after having been away for about ten years or so. Gotcha, gotcha. Hold on, Sean. We're gonna bring in Professor Tyson. 
Professor Tyson. Good evening. Uh, good afternoon. I'm saying good evening. I'm getting ahead of myself. Good afternoon. How are you, everyone? Oh, everybody's doing well. Doing well. Doing well. We got a little surprise for you today, Professor Tyson. One of your classmates is on uh, in the studio here with me, Sean Barney. Say hello to Sean Barney. Hello, Sean. Sean is, is more than my uh, classmate. Actually, Sean's a gear ahead of me. Sean was my campus pal. And, and <laughs> listening in, know exactly what that means. What's going on, Sean? I'm hanging, man. Glad to be on with you. Charles gave me the same surprise. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I told him that you're you're shaking it up in Baton Rouge and all over, say, Louisiana. So um, I knew you win. So that's what counts. You know, I'm just uh, I'm just excited to uh, have these big names. Um, as I mentioned before, you came online, Professor Tyson. You know, award winning. Congratulations on your recent award uh, at LSU, distinguished professor. Um, do me a favor, tell my listeners a little bit about yourself. Who is Chris Tyson? Well, I'm a Baton Rouge native, uh, father and husband of three young kids. I'm a law professor here at LSU. Law school, I teach in the areas of local government and real estate and property, and uh, very active here in my hometown of Baton Rouge, and uh, happy to be with you. Wonderful, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate it so much. And so our, our topic today is about being young, gifted, and black. And before you called in, I read some of uh, Nina Simone's lyrics from her 1958 song of the same title. I'm trying to get this, I'm trying to get at the root of what you all feel is being young, gifted, and black. And, and if the listeners heard, you all just gave a cursory note of your resume. So how do you all perceive or how, do, how would you say or what is the description of being young, gifted, and black in, in America today? Uh, Sean, you want to go? Or, or, or <laughs> you go ahead, Chris. You go ahead. Uh, look, I think it is um, It's always an exciting time to be young, gifted, and black, but particularly now. Um, uh, this is such a uh, such a moment where I think uh, being young and gifted and black is to be free, uh, is to resist, um, is to challenge uh, many of the conventions, both within our community and outside of our community, uh, to liberate yourself and others around issues of inequality and gender and sexuality and, and, and class and, and, and all of these dimensions. Uh, that have in many ways represented systems of oppression for past generations. And so uh, to be young, gifted, and black, uh, I hope, is to be uh, a healthy and whole uh, and happy human being uh, who is responsible, aware of the mandates of, of history and the legacy they inherit, uh, but unbounded uh, and, and free to, to live a happier life uh, than those uh, who came before you. And that's beautiful. The one thing that stuck out in that, and, and, and I'm sure that Sean probably will give such uh, just as much of an eloquent answer when I ask him this question, but is the ability to resist, in, particularly in this time. You know, to be young, gifted, and black means that we need to be out in the streets resisting what's going on in our country right now because we seem to be in that space where all of the gains that we have amassed over decades, and we're still pushing, but the bears are being put back up. And so being young, gifted, and black means that we have to have a good understanding, uh, not even a good, a critical understanding of how we have to resist. How are you actually teaching that, if possible, at LSU? 
Oh, wow. Um, Well, I think, you know, the classroom provides many opportunities to bring uh, stories and examples and and knowledge into the discussion of things that uh, may seem pedestrian, may seem, you know, pretty traditional and and, and settled, uh, but we can add new perspectives that kind of expand our thinking and challenge us and and raise new questions. Uh, So the classroom is an incredible space, I think, to to push these boundaries uh, and to challenge people uh, beyond their comfort level. Um, but that also happens outside of the classroom, right? Exactly. Uh, and it happens in the street. It happens in scholarship and in the spoken word. Uh, it happens in the workplace. Uh, it happens in our ability to stand up for others who we see being silenced and marginalized. Uh, it, it happens when we resist old conventional notions of what it means to be black uh, and young and this, that, and the other. All of that is happening in this moment. I was telling someone the other day that, you know, uh, it's, it's an exciting time to be like 20 years old in college, right? <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is, it is because you can speak your mind, you can say. In this moment um, with uh, discussions about um, uh, uh, resisting homophobia, resisting rape culture, uh, and resisting respectability politics uh, in blackness. Uh, and, and challenging the widening economic inequality uh, at its root causes and foundations. I, it just blows my mind. And I thought that I grew up as a Gen Xer in an exciting time, but um, you know, this is, I think, what's going on now and what young people are, are, are leading and producing and birthing um, is so inspirational. Wow, wow. Son, what do you think, man? How would you, how would you build on the professor's answer? What is young getting in black? For you, well, I, I agree with everything Chris said. Certainly, if I had to um, to boil it down to one word, I'd say confidence. I think that um, when you look at the Black Lives Matter movement and the uh, willingness, the desire, the passion uh, to take to the streets to resist, as Chris said, uh, when you think about uh, the example that President Obama set, especially when you look at uh, the current occupant of the, the White, White House and the longing that people have for that uh, leadership, for that dignity, uh, there's a confidence that comes with that. And so I think, just as Chris said, it's an exciting time um, to be, you know, just a young person and to be able to lean in on some of these, um, with some of these opportunities, but in some of these challenges as well. And so... I think that's interesting. Another point I'd make when you asked uh, Chris about just um, his professional um, life and and how does he convey that, I think it cannot go um, unnoticed that just his mere presence in the classroom Mm -hmm. um, in front of those students, uh, most of which probably don't look like him, um, but nonetheless uh, are looking for that guidance and that knowledge from him. And I'll tell you just... You know, it's interesting. We talked a little bit before coming on air about um, this recognition of my dad at LSU, and he served on that board. And the president of LSU pulled me aside uh, when we met last week and said, you know, I just want you to know there are more black students enrolled in LSU than ever before and more black graduates at LSU than ever before. And so I think, you know, it, it means that we've made up a lot of progress, certainly have a long way to go, 
But um, just as, as Chris said, I think that it's not only manifested in what he does in that on that campus, but who he is on that campus. And so that uh, is a strong reflection. Gotcha. You're listening to the What's Your Revolution show on WBOK 1230 AM. Talking about young, gifted, and black with Professor Chris Tyson of LSU and their wonderful law school and superstar developer Sean Barney. Get, amazing conversation, gentlemen. Let me go back to... Professor Tyson for one second. Um, I was a professor at Loyola, which is a predominantly white institution. You at the law school at LSU. What are some of the challenges that you have faced being a African-American male at a predominantly white institution? Um, you know, I, I have had, um, in, in this profession, in law teaching, the, the, the legal academy, um, the academy in general is is with people of color, yes, it is. Uh, women, yes, it is. Uh, and, and other underrepresented groups. Uh, the legal academy is even more so. Um, it, it, it is a bastion of kind of elitist, <laughs> um, uh, uh, an elitist space that uh, not many of us move in. So uh, that in and of itself, I think, poses a challenge. Uh, helping others get through the pipeline to get into the space as academics is a challenge. Uh, I've had the, the, the fortune to work around um, uh, some incredible people um, uh, of, of many backgrounds uh, uh, and, 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 and experienced, um, I think, uh, a commitment to making this uh, a more equitable environment. Uh, the challenges that I feel personally are, are making sure that I am doing everything I can to be available, particularly for all of my students, uh, but for t particularly for uh, my minority students who often, um, uh, uh, you know, have challenging experiences in this environment, to be frank with you. Uh, and so uh, being able to be present uh, and, and not just present, but to, to be their advocates uh, to help them through these, these uh, situations in ways that not only allow them to grow, uh, uh, but also allow them to do what they came here to do, you know, get a degree and, and move forward and, and, and do good in their communities and their families as, as they desire to. Right. That's the, the biggest challenge. Professor, I mean, it, it, it's interesting when, as if we go back to some of your comments, first being that there are not many of us on college campuses across the country. And as we move to try to assist and mentor our students of color. And, and, and we mentor all of our students, but, but we pay particular t attention to our students of color because we want them to be successful. But it becomes hard. You know, w with the topic of young, gifted, and black, part of that is being able to give back, to mentor. And as, as you said, that can be a challenge. I, I don't want to call it a struggle, but it can be a challenge because we become stretched thin. Because we, we see superstars on campuses and they're pulled into every storyline. They're every piece of diversity. You're on the diversity committee. Or when something happens on campus, you're being pulled in as an expert. So we get pulled so much. You know, um, so what are some of the supports that you need to continue well, I, to be, you know, the superstar that you are on campus? It's so interesting you, you point that out. When I first got here, uh, I had an opportunity to go to a, a conference with minority law faculty who were making that same point, who were saying, look, the biggest challenge you're going to face is, is meeting the requirements to get tenured, um, uh, to move through this professional track, uh, and to, to be available and present uh, 
all of these other things that people are going to want from you. Uh, and I will tell you, it was actually a colleague of mine who happens to be a white and older gentleman who pulled me aside early, took me to lunch, uh, and he said, and he, and he was very frank with me, and I appreciated it. And he said, look, I have seen a lot of, of young faculty of color come in and, and get so consumed with so many other things that they don't write. They don't <laughs> do the things exactly. that they need to do exactly. to advance. And he said, just be mindful of that. And I appreciated him saying it because you do come in, you know, automatically you change the percentage of black people on faculty. Mm -hmm. uh, and so many people want things from you. Your, your, your black students want things from you. Your, your white students may have expectations. Your white colleagues have expectations. Your black colleagues do. And it's, it's, it's hard to navigate that. Um, uh, I had mentors. Uh, 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 had mentors here, had mentors other places, uh, and so that kept me grounded. I had peer mentors who were, you know, a few years ahead of me in the profession and were able to help me avoid certain landmines and identify some of these risks. Uh, so I would say to anyone entering this um, who's concerned about that, uh, you have to humble yourself to reach out. Right. Um, the, the, the type of personalities who end up in these <laughs> Uh, uh, fields tend to be very type A-ish, tend to think they don't need help, tend to not ask for help as often. Um, uh, and that is probably, you know, your Achilles heel. Right, I remember. Reach out. I'm uh, sorry, as I'm much sorry. As you, yeah, no, no, as much as you are striving to be a better mentor, you also have to be a good mentee. Right, I exactly. And I say that all the time, is that we get to spaces and people are looking for us to mentor them. But what happens to us as we ascend, there very rarely are mentors above us. And as, as you look, we, we need that space, you know, and, and you, uh, you and Sean both know, uh, being executives, entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurial spirit, that leadership coaching, the field has grown so much over the last 20 to 25 years. Um, and so just having that person that can guide you and and there are not a lot of us that are actually in the field. You know, I think about it from a therapeutic perspective, is that the ther therapist that I go to is a man of color. And I sought him out because there was that connection. And I, I wanted to make sure, because not always going to someone who looks like you is going to be the best thing, but yeah. we had a connection. And he understood the plight that I was going through. And so I think that we need the same thing in the leadership space, in the leadership coaching space, that... Um, that will help us continue to grow. Sean, you want to say something? Sure. It's, it's, I think it's a great point. You know, my, my, my wife pointed something out to me um, recently. She said, you know, a lot of your professional success is defined by um, your, eco, your personal ecosystem of advisors, mentors, and sponsors. And, and those may sound similar, but I think to Chris's point, they each play, you know, different roles. And, you know, advisors may not be as vested Mentors are somewhat vested, and sponsors, kind of like your parents, don't let you fail. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that uh, my wife also shared with me some time ago. She said, listen, my folks were happy to go to work, have a job, and, and make a living. Um, and she said, you know, you saw your dad being a, a CEO and executive, and that gave you a different type of leadership example. So I think it's so, so important to surround yourself with those different levels of folks that can, frankly, coach you up. Yeah, that, that is key, and I think that's a, a, a wonderful space as, as we are looking to facilitate the, the, the people who are coming behind us and ensuring that they are young, 
gifted, and black. We're going to go to line one. We're not going to go to line one. Thank you. I, I love I, I love my I love my Rachel uh, and our hand signals. Yes, thank you, thank you. Uh, we're trying to we're trying to make this happen. You're listening to WBOK 12:30 a.m. This is the What's Your Revolution show. We're going to go to line two. Thank you, Rachel. I appreciate you. This is the What's Your Revolution show. How are you? You're talking to me, right? Yeah, I'm talking to you, brother. What's going on? Yeah, you the brother, man. Let me just say, I, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give all three of y'all brothers in the business a compliment and an observation. You got one hell of a voice, brother. You got a lot of knowledge, brother. <laughs> I appreciate you. I appreciate you. You be bringing some real heavy concepts to the to the people listening, right? And uh, I, I, listen, I listen to you all the time, man. Uh, man, I'm humbled. And, and, I'm and humbled. I love the way you you connect the past to the present. And let me just say, keep doing what you're doing because you're making impact, right? I'm an older brother, right? I'm one of the older brothers came out through the sixes, right? Tell the story, brother. And let me just say about the Barney brother, the chip <laughs> off the old block. Let me tell you something. I know your daddy. I spent hours and hours with your father, brother. I appreciate that. And your daddy was very committed to black people in this city, brother. Absolutely. And I wasn't. I wasn't here when he passed, but he moved on to the realm of ancestors. I was living on the West Coast at the time. But he was. Uh, I met him. In my, I was. I was in my twenties. Now I'm post seventy years old, right? Mm-hmm. So I met him in my twenties after coming out of uh, that crazy war in Vietnam, right? Oh, wow, wow. And Appreciate uh, your he service, was uh, on the scene, brother. Strong and committed and giving good leadership. And he affected not just me, but we had a, he had a lot of young brothers my age at that time. He he, he spent a lot of time with young brothers. <laughs> you understand what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. I think he, been, he spent more time with younger brothers and sisters during that era than any other group of grouping, right? So he had a tremendous impact on me, and I look he had a powerful intellect and understanding what was going on, what needed to be done as a people, and and, and, and he cultivated. I think he was very conscious of the fact. He was actually cultivating us to be leaders in our community. That's right. And let me let me just say that now. I'm gonna move to Brother Tyson. Let me tell. I wrote it for you, brother. You wrote. You ran for U.S. Thank you, brother. He's in a U.S. Uh, Attorney General, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Man, I heard you, man. I've seen you. I saw a couple of little sound bites of you. I heard some seen some little articles that, that, that quoted you. You're a brilliant black man, brother. <laughs> and you understand your role as a, as a, as a, a legal mind. You understand the historical. Uh, precedents, a historical contra- contradiction that exists in our community, and how we, we confront it with. Just keep on doing what you're doing, bro. Because like I think you ought to come down on a local level and run for one of the mayorships or something. You understand? <laughs> I know it's Thank almost you, impossible for you to win on the state level with all them yahoos and all over the region. Gotcha. Them, bro. Gotcha. <laughs> you know, maybe run for local office in Baton Rouge or something, right? And win that, win there, and. Uh, but hey, man, you keep doing what you're doing. You got a beautiful voice, beautiful into your mind. It's sharp as a tack, and you 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 are actually holding up the whole tradition of black freedom fighters and lawyers. In the, in, the, in, in, in this, if you go back to AP Turo, Derek Bell, all these other, pay, uh, even Bill Costner, you represent a lot of people, and your, your voice and what you be saying is right on point, brother. So I'm going to get out the way, and I'm going to continue to listen to y'all's show, but I'm sitting on the computer, had to fall in. But hey, I love all three of your brothers. I guess what, Brother uh, Tyson? I mean, Brother uh, Barney? Yes, sir. I'm the brother that stepped up to you after you made that little speech over at Suno. Okay. Okay. And you, after you spoke, I, ste- I slid up to you and had, and 
have a little brief conversation about, you, about your father. Brother Seiko, we appreciate your phone call, brother, and thank you for listening, no, man. I'm getting out the way. I'm going to listen, though, to uh, y'all brilliancy. All right, take care, brother. Appreciate you, appreciate you. Professor Tyson, I got one more. I know you got to go. Your time is valuable, brother. I appreciate it so much, the no, wisdom thank and you. Thank you. the knowledge. Uh, as Brother Seiko just said, you've ran for office, you know, uh, recently, and at the state's, you know, fault, you're, you're not in office right now, but we need you. But what was that process like for you, running for office? You know, and and I feel like the show, and I, I need to bring show the, the theme of the show about us finding the healthiest versions of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so, so I, I, I'm kind of old school in thinking that uh, public service is just one of the highest callings. That doesn't begin when you run for office. Certainly you can volunteer. You can be, you know, active in the community in so many ways. Uh, so I, I considered it a privilege to be able to run for office. Uh, when you step up and say, I want to do X, Y, and Z, I want to be this, and I want you to elect me to this, uh, and people, uh, uh, friends, family, and strangers alike open up their wallets, give up their time, offer their prayers, uh, come and, and stand with you and, 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 and greet you as you travel around the state, uh, there is simply uh, a few things in life that are more beautiful than that. Uh, and that's what I experienced. And it was amazing. Um, uh, it made it deepen my love for the state. It deepened my love for the political process. And so I felt privileged to go through it. Uh, I left it uh, energized. And, and if the right position and timing and other, other factors line up, if the stars aligned uh, and, and, and an opportunity comes, I certainly would consider doing it again. I'm happy to not have anything to run for right now, <laughs> but um, no, brother, it was an absolutely beautiful process. I am humbled uh, by the support. I take each and every dollar. I take each and every uh, moment spent. I take each and every vote um, seriously, uh, and so I feel very blessed to have had that experience. Man, we appreciate it. And in that moment, the words that you have just said show me that to understand that process and to be in the healthiest state of your life – is a beautiful thing because that's how you see that process. Even 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 though you did not get elected, you were able to take everything from it. And for us as men and for us as black men, we've got to see the value in each experience. To be healthy doesn't always mean that we're going to be successful. It is how we handle the challenges that come up when we're not successful. So we appreciate that, and I appreciate all the words, brother. Thank you so much for everything today, and we look forward to having you back on the show and looking forward thanks, to you thanks, running Thanks for having soon. me. Yeah, th thanks for having me, and, and kudos on the show. It's uh, always good to be in the company of Sean, Absolutely. and uh, y'all be good. <laughs> all right, thanks, Chris. As we all go right. to break, I want you to think about your revolution, and then we're going to come back with Brother Sean Barney as he details his revolution as we talk about something very interesting that he's doing here in this city. We'll see you on the other side.
what a lovely, precious dream.
Welcome back to the What's Your Revolution show. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corporal. I want to thank Professor Chris Tyson, LSU Law School, for coming on the show and dropping not only pearls, just giving us the whole well of wisdom uh, today on being young, gifted, and black. We're going to continue the conversation with my good friend, superstar developer, entrepreneur. I'm going to put that on my card. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be your hype man. <laughs> take me everywhere Take me everywhere yeah, we, you go. We, we need one. I need one. I need one. <laughs> when you go out everywhere, this is my man, introducing superstar entrepreneur. All right. Um, Sean, you know, and I've got to ask it. I forgot to ask Brother Tyson this question, so I, I cannot, cannot leave my show without asking this question to you. So what's your revolution? Well, um, that's a great question. I think that these days, um, yeah, I'm a business person, but as the caller said earlier, I come from a lineage of parents, certainly my father, who believed in making a difference and that impact mattered. And so from my perspective, you know, I am really looking at uh, bringing awareness and uh, analysis to the root causes of disparities and disproportionality um, in order to affect some of the systems in our city. Um, and I think those disparities and that disproportionality are largely based on race. And so race is the largest determinant of your outcomes in life, whether you're a business person like myself or you're you know, just any kid walking around uh, on the street. And so I think using some of my influence, some of my political capital to um, evangelize that message to some of my, my peers and some of the folks that I do business with is important because that, in my opinion, is the, is the, the, the pathway to being um, a world-class city. And so folks will sort of say, well, you know, what do you, what do you mean? Um, the best cities uh, now understand that you need to have a, a sector of your economy that is world-class. So, so folks were sort of default to tourism. Well, increasingly, that is inclusivity. I was with the mayor of Houston twice in, in a small group of 20, 25 people right after he got elected and then a larger group of 70. And, and he basically told both audiences that you know Houston's competitive advantage these days is by 2022 or 20, sometimes very soon, there will be a quarter Asian, a quarter black, a quarter Hispanic, and a quarter white. And that's what he's talking to, you know, people who are looking to make investments in the city of Houston. He also said, you know, Houston will be, I believe, the second largest city uh, in America beyond New York at that same time. And so the way I look at it is that if, you know, New Orleans really wants to be competitive, we need to figure out a way to build in coalitions that bring people of color in this city uh, into the into the economic uh, mainstream. And so that's a long answer to your no, question I, about it, but I think that that is, you know, what it will ultimately take in order to, to really move the, the city um, forward past sort of this, what I kind of call this apartheid economy um, that we have in the, in the city. So that is, I think, the challenge, and, and it's worth um, confronting, and I think we have an opportunity to, uh, to, to make some progress on it. Gotcha, man. Love that. Love that. So your, your revolution is, is getting the city to talk about what it has needed to talk about for the last 300 years. Is that what you're saying? To really put it in their face that race is that determining factor. A absolutely. You know, I wrote a piece um, last month um, in the Tribune 
Um, and it basically, you know, talked about what the tricentennial means to me. And I think that's a, a great inflection point, just what you just said, is that uh, for so many of us, the last 300 years of the city has not been great. And so how do you use this upcoming tricentennial, not to have a celebration or a party, but, but more of a paradigm shift of how do you define the next 100 years for all people in this city to make sure that all people have the opportunity to participate. Because if you have a large underclass like you do, then the city, again, will always, you know, have great potential, but you'll always be reading on the front page about the crime epidemic. Mm -hmm. You'll also be reading about, you know, always education reform is coming. So a lot of those things, I think, um, you have an opportunity to sort of reframe and reset as you look to uh, New Orleans going into year 300 and 301 and 302. Right. I love that you put it in that sense in the context of world class. And, and think about that, you know, because people love New Orleans. Everywhere I go, where do you say you're from? I'm from New Orleans, you know, and I, I can say that now. So there are going to be some people hating on me because I'm actually not from New Orleans. <laughs> but You gave it away. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is why I'm from New Orleans. Six days before the storm, I bought my house, all right? Six days. And so um, I have grown up. I have been here immersed in this city for the last 12 years and have seen have seen this city grow and been a part of it. So it's in me. It's mm-hmm. it's a part of me. I got to tell a little story, Sean. Can I, can I tell this sure, story for a second? Sure. You know, Sean and I met probably – actually, I know exactly the day that Sean and I met – we were at someone's 45th birthday party. Uh, we won't say any names, Rachel Graham. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's, that's, that's where we met, Rachel. We, we met there. So um, Sean was outside talking to actually my attorney, Michelle Craig. And Sean and I got into a, a conversation about the work that I'm going to let him tell in a few moments. But we, had a, we, were, we were having a disagreement about how the work should be done. Um, and I'm an intersectionalist. Uh, so when I go out and do the equity work that I do, I come at it from a framework of that we are an amalgamation. So race, gender, socioeconomic status, religion, able body, all of those various things. And so Sean and I got into this conversation. This is the first time, you know, and I'm all about healthy masculinity, all these things going on. But it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't the friendliest of conversations. Um, so Sean invited me, and I know his, his good friend, Alan Square. Sean said, look, I'm having... Uh, I'm having an event, and I'll let him tell more about it. And I said, you know, and I, and I waffled back and forth. I was like, why am I going to go? And I'm, I'm, you don't know this. So I was like, why am I going to go? This is what I do. And I was talking to some of my other Kellogg fellows, and they asked me, was I going? I, and I said, and I was like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not going to go. And they were like, look, this is a good opportunity to, to at least hear another perspective. We know this is what you do. We know this is what you travel across the country and do with people. But go here. So when I went and sat through the two days, not only was I engaged for the two days because, you know, uh, I have adult ADD. Uh, so I'm like, all right. I was engaged, but I learned. I learned a tremendous amount of information. And I walked up to Sean. And one thing about being in our healthiest state, and I'm still walking, is that we need to be able to go up and say, you know what? I was wrong or that I'm sorry or that I get it. Mm-hmm. Sean, you remember that point? Yeah, absolutely. I walked up to Sean after this and said, you know what? I was a little reticent about coming, but I get it now, you know. So moving forward to this space, you're fulfilling your revolution by doing what? Well, as I said before, um, we, we, myself and 
three other entrepreneurs, Alan Square, who's a black brother, um, Andrea Chin is an Asian woman, and Emily Madero is a white woman. We had the opportunity to be exposed to uh, this race and equity piece when we were part of this uh, deal uh, called Ford Cities, which was looking at um, uh, minority-majority uh, cities and their whether or not they were inclusive. And we, the four of us, were blown away coming from different experiences personally, different perspectives, but really said in hearing, and this was in Durham, North Carolina, we collectively said almost immediately after that we need to bring this conversation to um, New Orleans and sort of let it sit and, um, and, and really get what we define as what we call systems leaders, people who, who run or influence large systems, education, criminal justice. And have them participate. We did it the first time, and the first, you know, we do it with about 30 people or so, 35. And those folks were blown away. And I'll never forget that one of my co-hosts, I was ready to go do race 3.0. And she <laughs> was like, listen, I'm from Maine. I've never heard all this before. She's like, I'm just getting my head wrapped around it. And, um, and so um, the folks who participated said, you guys had to do it again. And then, you know, those folks that you need to do it again. So we've been facilitating the conversation. We bring the folks from, from Durham. We, we pay for it out of our own pocket. And, and really, we bring together a diverse group of people who um, are not always the choir. I think that's important is that sometimes folks, you know, bring the, together the folks who always hear this or who, all, who already get it, who live it. But we go out of our way to um, sort of corral, break arms to get people who <laughs> have the privilege of hearing or discussing race on their own terms, if at all, with other people who live and breathe race every day. And let me be clear, you know, I'm very happy to be a black man. I love being black. And, um, you know, we get into that in another show. Yeah, no um, but, um, but at the same time, I think it's important for other people to sort of understand, again, that I'm not necessarily saying that you individually may be racist or be in a race-based system, or but some of the systems are. And I think that the sooner we're willing to uh, confront that and really understand the dynamics behind it, I think, again, the better off we'll be uh, as, as a community. And, and I go back to, again, that, that pitch that the mayor of Houston made. That is what they are leading with is their – uh, diversity. And so um, it can be, I think it is, an economic message, um, uh, not only for um, the, the city, but I think for individuals uh, here. I think that that, uh, that uh, makes a lot of sense. So why is this conversation, why is this conversation so important to begin with race? Because that was that, that was part of the conversation that you and I had. Why is it so important that race is the, is, is the, the foray into diversity, equity, and inclusion? Well, I think that we know several key observations um, about racial inequity. One, racial inequity looks the same across systems. So you can look at uh, criminal justice, you can look at education, you can look at income, you can look at incarceration rates. So you know, racial inequity looks the same across all those systems. That's why we decided to invite these systems leaders. Second point I'd say about why race matters in it is that socioeconomic difference does not explain the racial inequity. So 
I maybe as a, a, a person of color whose parents have uh, graduated from college am just as likely to be arrested as a white kid who's my age whose parents did not go to college. And so, you know, you'd think, well, you know, affluence sort of exempts me from that. It doesn't. And there are examples all across the spectrum that socioeconomic difference doesn't explain the racial inequity. Two other quick points. Systems contribute significantly to those disparities, so they exacerbate them. And then the last one would probably be that the, the systems level disparities cannot be explained by a few bad apples or um, ill-intentioned sort of gatekeepers. So, you know, as I said in our earlier block, um, you know, race is the key determinant of your outcome in life. You know, to some extent, when you'll die, you're more like, you know, your likelihood to go to college, how much being money a black you'll man. make. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that is not accidental. Now, people can try to explain that away, or you can try to understand, you know, how to improve upon it. And so I think that that myself and the other three co-hosts and all the people who probably done four or five eight sessions, people who participate have committed to taking the latter path as to sort of within the context of our city, how do we sort of address that? Right, right, no doubt. And you have to think about diving in with race. You also have to think about the other intersectionalities that we've talked about, mm -hmm. uh, that race, sexual orientation, um, gender, um, religious affiliation, all of those things play into whether we are privileged or we're marginalized. So sure. as I say uh, in the work that I do, is that depending on where we are in, in the context that we vacillate between marginalization and privilege. So mm -hmm. black and male. So yeah. being male privileged, but having the oppression of being black. Uh, so it is really interesting that you, you have to see race and you have to see race as the most integral part of that conversation. But you, I don't feel like you can leave the rest of it out. Agree. And yeah. I, I would just say that, the, the, as you know, from participating, I think the analogy is more that perhaps I did not share with you when we first met is that, you know, race is probably bookends. There are a lot of things in between, but it is, you know, sort of this framing of America with, you know, white and, you know, one end and black on another end. And all those other isms, as they sort of say, you know, play in between at various different uh, degrees. And so I, I think we're aligned that, mm -hmm. um, you know, there are a lot of things that are in, at play. And, and frankly, you know, just from my perspective, we decided um, that this was so profound that this was what we were going to tackle um, and, and go forward. Gotcha. Gotcha, brother. I appreciate that answer. You are listening to the What's Your Revolution show. I am on topic today about Young, Gifted, and Black with managing partner of CLB Porter LLC, Sean Barney. And we are now unpacking the issue of social justice and racial equity and how that pertains to be to being young, gifted, and black. We've been talking about the Racial Equity Institute and their work. And actually what you've just talked about, what you just they would coin the groundwater, mm -hmm. the, the, that information that really talks about race being at the ground level and that we've got to build up to really understand that. So let's, let's move forward a little bit. Who needs to be in those conversations? As you said, the choir, people in the choir, but who else needs to be there? Well, again, I think that there are, are folks who, um, who, who are reluctant to um, – believe the history, frankly. I mean, it's not anything 
more compelling than that. As you know, we go through a chronological uh, data-driven sort of two days that goes through the history and how race has been codified into the code from the very beginning. We're talking early 1600s through the GI Bill and the housing bill and some of those things. And then there are contemporaneous examples of how, you know, taking out race basically um, perpetuates racial outcomes, right? You know, so you talk about city zoning laws and redlining. and redlining and those things. And all of a sudden you wonder why these neighborhoods are homogenous, all black. And we know that, um, you know, people tend to kill people in the neighborhoods in which they leave. And so does that perpetuate the black on black crime kind of wow. epidemic that wow. goes in? So we know all those things, but if you want, if, you know, folks do not want to distill and sort of peel back what some of this has been about and how it's been perpetuated over time, then we tend to have a willingness to sort of simplify. So to answer your question, again, we, we try to invite, I, I, I want to be careful we're not uh, exposing folks no and doubt, calling them no by doubt. name, but, but we try to invite people who, um, lar- who have large, significant impacts on our city, you know, um, folks. The president who, of Tulane, the largest employer in the city. Tulane and Oshner and uh, a lot of those institutions we invite, and you know, it's a scheduling thing because it's a two-day commitment. But sure, the the executive director of the public defender's office, who um, who we've had before, and nice um, to get the, the mayor of the city there. It certainly certainly would be be, <laughs> be great, and and we did have you know his um, his chief of staff who okay. also participated. Um, and who's doing her own great work on on equity. So we 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 try to reach out, and I think what makes it unique is that um, you know folks, when we're inviting them, given that this isn't our work, um, I think they're a little bit intrigued to be to be honest with you, um, and um, and decide that they're going to take take us up on that invitation. And, and I just want to build on what you mentioned because about the groundwater analogy because that really resonated with me and you know they they basically say that there is this fish in the lake analogy to illustrate our tendency to ascribe poverty and other social problems uh to individual behaviors and decisions right and that's a sick fish and so you know, what they sort of talk about is we're in the business of treating fish. So we have a DBE program to treat that fish. Right. And we have mm-hmm. a affordable piece to treat that fish when really it's a system problem. It's the lake. And so the analogy they use, as you know, they said, you know, if you have a lake and you have one dead fish, you say, what's the matter with that fish? But if you have a lake and you have half of the fish that are dead, you say, what's the matter with that lake? Right. And so our approach is that there, there's a, a lake problem. And so we're trying to facilitate that conversation with people who are effectively the lake, who comprise the lake to see if we can sort of tackle it and and make headway. Right. And, you know, in the systems thinking perspective, the levers, the levers points. And in this in this case, it is those people who have, like you said, can have large impacts in the system. Sure. You know, and those people and they can't just can't just be choir folks. Getting those people, like we've just said, because I, from a privileged perspective, I don't have to care about this. Right. So it it comes to the point where how how are you getting them there? Well, I think we again, you know, we're four entrepreneurs, so our common orientation is really from a business perspective. 
Um, but what but what I think we collectively believe is that you know this whole thing of equity and inequity is really an, an economic argument. If you have a whole class of people that are not involved in the city's economy, that are not um, in, integrated and evol- involved, then I think that 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 poses a problem. The city is not reaching its full potential to use the finance vernacular, not uh, reaching uh, maximizing its return. And so, you know, when you look around at a, at a city whose you know main industry is tourism, but you know, m- black folks make up the majority of the labor, but not necessarily the management and the ownership. Well, that's a that's a big problem. And so, not you know, not having many black-owned restaurants relative to the larger number of restaurants, not having any black-owned hotels or, you know, just so, again, I think that that is a big piece of what we lean on, in on is that that uh, equity is really an economic development argument. Right, and as you said, and we're going to bring it back to uh, part of our original conversation, equity also facilitates being young, gifted, and black, you know, and we think about some of the challenges and struggles that being successful um, inequitable policies, inequitable practices, inequitable programs that do not assist a large majority of our people in ascending to that point of being young, gifted, and black. And so how would you think about moving that conversation from an economic perspective to making sure that more people are actually ascending to the places that you, I, Professor Tyson, you know, have uh, achieved you know, how does the equity play into that conversation of being young, gifted, and black? I think you got to be upfront about it. I think you have to look at it and and basically, you know, um, you know, confront the the issue and point it out to people. And I think it, it resonates. You know, the thing I like to say is, um, you know, a lot of times in some of these uh, things, uh, these programs, you know, white folks get the the um, the resources, the money. Black folks get the services. Kind of same thing in criminal justice, right? You know, black folks get uh, um, law and order. White folks sometimes get protect and serve. Mm. You know, so I think that pointing those things out um, and and how the systems perpetuate that is the way to go about it. Again, most of the folks that we bring, or all of the folks, I don't certainly think that there's any racial issue with them individually, but it's about the system. And when you look across all the data, you know, every system, and you see – you know, one outcome here, one outcome there, then, you know, from that is, I think, um, compelling to the folks that we bring to the table. So I think you have to confront it. You have to show them the data. And, you know, you have to be willing to sort of articulate the case of why it is the way it is and what is the pathway forward to moving it along. Right. And we need we need to continue to have these conversations around equity, around racial equity, excuse me, and social justice, because we need more of us in spaces to be able to make policy, to create practice, to create programming that is going to assist all of us mm-hmm. uh, in being successful. As we begin to wrap up today, and I appreciate you know you and Professor Tyson being on the show. What is the what is the last thing that you might want to say to the listeners about participating in this equity conversation? And we have listeners of you know of all gender races. What would you want to say in that, that, last, that last piece that you want to leave with them about being involved in that and how that can facilitate everyone being gifted? Well, it probably goes back to what you said 
to me earlier, the first question, what is your evolution? I think you got to engage people in, in this conversation and sort of understand the reason that things are the way that they are. And, you know, from my perspective, it's something that, uh, you know, I talk about with friends. Um, I've developed new friendships and relationships around this conversation. Um, and, and that is what I think is, is ultimately what is required. It, there, it has to be a dialogue. As you know, the conversations are respectful but unvarnished. And so you got to be truthful and sort of, you know, call things as they are. Um, and, um, you know, and I think that that is the way to sort of uh, approach it. In many ways, the city of New Orleans, um, you know, with the monument conversation, is also having that type of, of conversation um, at a very large scale. So I think engaging and moving forward is the, the way to go. Right. And as I think that as we want to revolutionize our lives and think about our own personal revolution and how that impacts a global revolution, people of color have to continue to push this conversation about racial equity, social justice, and overall equity to ensure that they are in safe spaces, to ensure that they have means to be successful, the means to grow. You know, as you said, one of the last things that I'll say is that if you're playing Monopoly, you know, and you're sitting, you know, if you got to sit and wait two hours and then only can play for one hour, it's going to be hard to win the game. We need to make sure for people to be young, gifted, and black that they're playing the full That's time. Right. We're right. playing the full time. We want to continue to wrap up. We want to thank Sean Barty, Barney, managing partner of CLB Porter LLC, and Chris Tyson, the Newman Trowbridge Distinguished Associate Professor of Law at the Paul Bear Law Center of Louisiana State University. Thank you, Rachel, for all of that. As we always say, thank you for listening to the show today. I appreciate everyone, all the comments, all the listeners, my man Jazz behind the wheels of steels, <laughs> and Rachel, my producer. And every week I ask you to ask this question, not only to yourself, but to everyone you meet. What's your revolution? Have a great week. Take care. Let me